Well, the last several weeks, uh, we've been talking about different ways to think about our lives. And we talked about a couple weeks ago of thinking about life like a maze and uh, how sometimes you got to go around a way you didn't expect to get to the end. And then last week, we talked about uh, life like a recipe. So like if you're cooking and uh, there are times where you're adding a bunch of things in, but you got to do it in the right order <laughs> or you might end up not with the right thing. And then there are times where you stick it in the oven for a while and maybe it seems like nothing's happening, but something's really happening. And so looked at life like a recipe. Today, I want us to think about life like a field or like a garden. So let's think about this. What does it take for a plant to grow? Any ideas? What, what does a plant need to grow? It needs water. It needs sun. Anything else? It needs dirt. Anything else? What else? Some wind, maybe, yeah. What else does a plant need to grow? Hmm. What's that? A seed, yeah. We almost forgot about that. That's a pretty important part, isn't it? Because if you have dirt and you have water and you have sun and you have wind, but you don't have a seed, what's going to grow? Uh, nothing. <laughs> yep. That's not going to work at all. But if you have a seed in the ground and then you have the soil and you have the sun and you have the rain, then uh, you can have a lovely plant that grows. And uh, this is actually something that uh, Jesus talks about several times, talks about things in terms of seeds and plants growing and that sort of thing. And in fact, he even talks a lot about uh, people needing to bear fruit. Isn't that weird? That's what plants do, right? (laughs) That it's plants that actually have fruit on them, uh, not so much people. I hear you. But when we think about it in these terms, it kind of makes sense that, oh, yeah, maybe there is a way that we are kind of like plants. Maybe there are things that we need in our lives in order that we would grow and that we would actually become the people that God has made us to be and that we would bear fruit, as Jesus says, and actually um, exhibit the things that we're supposed to be growing. Then the good things are supposed to be growing in our lives. So tell me this. Do you think that God sends rain on good people or bad people? On the good people? Good people get rain, bad people don't? What about, what about sunshine? Does he send sh- sunshine on good people or bad people? Okay, so he sends rain on bad people and sun on good people. Doesn't he send it to everybody? Huh? That's a good question. What do you guys think? Does he send it to everybody? Or just... Hmm. Sometimes we have rain. Yeah. Hmm. This is a good question. Tell you what. Instead of us just making up our answers, why don't we look and see what Jesus said about it? Because he actually talked about this. And he says in Matthew 5, at the very end, He says, let's see, you've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. Here it goes. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. Hmm. 
and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. What? It is. It's both. He sends sun and he sends rain on both. But wait. So who is it that bears fruit if they're all getting the sun and they're all getting the rain? Hmm. I think there are a couple different ways you could answer this. Jesus says that uh, later that it's the people who actually are remaining in him and that stay connected to him. Another way, though, that you could think about it is it's where the seeds are planted. That's what's going to grow, right? So um, have you ever heard the, the song that says, uh, rain, rain, go away, come again another day, right? <laughs> you, you know more verses than I do. Yeah, you say, rain, rain, go away, come again. And the whole idea of that is thinking, oh, no, no, rain is going to spoil my plans, right? That I wanted to go play in the sunshine, but now it's raining, so we were going to have a baseball game, but now it's canceled. Oh, no. You know, that kind of thing. But it helps the animals in the grass, doesn't it? Yeah. And in fact, if you're trying to grow plants, it gives you a whole different way of thinking about rain. You don't say rain, rain, go away, do you? No. Have you ever noticed how many times uh, when we're asking for prayer requests, people say to pray for rain? Yeah. You know, mostly, that's right, that counts too, that mostly when people are asking for uh, prayers for rain, you know who mostly is asking for prayers for rain? It's people who's planted stuff, right? Because <laughs> everybody knows we need it, but some people really know we need it. And so here's a poem that I think is really cool. It's a very, very short one. You can probably memorize it in not very long. It's called Forecast by Lucy Shaw. And it just says, Planting seeds inevitably changes my feelings about rain. Hmm. So think about that. So when we think about the sunshine that God sends and the rain that God sends, there might be days that we think, oh, I don't want it to be like this for me. On the other hand, if we're trying to grow something, and so we think about what it means to plant uh, a seed in our lives of God's word into our lives, and we think, that God wants me to bear fruit, then we think, okay, then God, I do want you to send sun into my life. I do want you to send rain into my life because even though it might mess up my plans, I know what it is that you're trying to grow. You're trying to bear fruit in my life. Those good things that you made me to do and to be, to show other people what God is like. And so if that's where our focus is, we're going to be those that when the opportunities come with sun, we go, oh, good. God, what do you have for me in this? How is this going to grow that fruit in my life? And when we have the rain come in our lives, we say, oh, good. God, how is uh, this an opportunity for you to grow the fruit in my life? Right? That's a whole different way of thinking about it. So here again, the poem says, planting seeds inevitably changes my feelings about rain. So then the question I have for you is, how can we plant God's word into our lives so that rain or sun, as it comes, uh, will actually grow in us the fruit that we're supposed to be growing how do we plant his word into our lives good answer i like it any other ideas let's think on that one okay think about how we can plant god's word in our lives let's pray heavenly father we do thank you for this day that you have made and god we thank you for the uh the work that you're doing in our lives the way that you do send to us things that are good for us. 
God, we pray that you would help us to be those who have, have your word planted in our lives. God, that we would, that we would be able to accept the sun and the rain into our lives as what is needed for our growth. We pray that you'd help us to receive these opportunities as the gifts that they are. And God, we do pray that you'd help us to not miss the opportunities to grow, to be more like Jesus, to bear that kind of fruit in our lives and in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We turn to our gospel reading for this morning. It's Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. And here we get Jesus bringing good things into someone's life, and yet people want to um, run him off because of it. I'll let you hear how this goes and think about how that may be the case in other situations as well. This is Mark chapter 5, 1 through 20. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. And God, we do thank you for your word that you have given to us. And Lord, we do ask that this morning that you would help your word to be planted into our lives in a way that will bear fruit. Lord, we pray that you would give us ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts that are ready to receive your word. And God, not just to receive it, but to allow it to settle and to be watered and to grow. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 5 says, They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot. But he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people that had, what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. 
Turning then to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. Paul continuing his letter to the church in Corinth. This is by the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you, I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold toward you when away. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be toward some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. You are judging by appearances. If anyone is confident that they belong to Christ, they should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as they do. So even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up rather than tearing you down, I will not be ashamed of it. I do not want to seem to be trying to frighten you with my letters. For some say, his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. Such people should realize that what we are in our letters when we are absent, we will be in our actions when we are present. We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond proper limits, but will confine our boasting to the sphere of service God himself has assigned to us, a sphere that also includes you. We are not going too far in our boasting, as would be the case if we had not come to you. For we did get as far as you with the gospel of Christ. Neither do we go beyond our limits by boasting of work done by others. Our hope is that as your faith continues to grow, our sphere of activity among you will greatly expand so that we can preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. For we do not want to boast about work already done in someone else's territory, but let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this morning we are looking at Genesis chapter 41, picking up in verse 41 and going on through the end of the chapter in verse 57. And we are actually picking up a story that's kind of already been going for a while. We've been looking at this story um, really for over a year as we've been in the book of Genesis. So let me catch you up to speed. We have looked at in the very beginning of God creating the whole world. And from then, creating people. And from then, uh, that relationship that he had with people where... um, he was with them, they were with him, and all was good until they turned away and decided to do things their own way. When this happened, everything breaks down. We see everything uh, spiral from there to the point that uh, God kind of starts everything over with Noah and the flood. And then later on down the road, we see that that has not fixed anything, but the human heart was still kind of only evil all the time kind of thing. Consistently bent away from God instead of towards him. But then we have God choosing this man named Abram and saying, it's through you. I'm going to bless you. And it's through you that all the peoples on earth are going to be blessed. 
And in that first uh, conversation that God is having with Abram, it's important to notice that what Abram has to do for this to be true is nothing. God just takes this guy and says, this is what I'm going to do, period. (laughs) There are a lot of times where you have God saying, if you do this, then this will be the case. Right here, he just says, I'm going to do it, period. (laughs) And so then we start following on with Abram, because his name changed to Abraham, and his uh, son and grandson and great-grandson, and we're looking for, okay, when is this going to happen? That the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. All the peoples of the world are going to be blessed through this family. How is it that God is going to kind of fix this problem that has been happening since the very beginning? And generation after generation, we see kind of some hints here and there, but overall, we keep going, nah, it's not it. <laughs> that is not it. And then we get to, um, we get to Joseph, and we've seen several times already in Joseph's story that he has been uh, placed in a situation where he has the opportunity to bring some blessing to uh, another people group, namely the Egyptians. And we've seen him doing that. We saw uh, Abraham and Isaac actually go down to Egypt, and both times they did not bring good things to the Egyptians. (laughs) They caused problems every time they went uh, by their own lying and scheming for self-protection. Then we see with Joseph, he goes down to Egypt, uh, not voluntarily, but because his brothers have sold him into slavery. And as he goes to Egypt, we see that in slavery, he serves his Egyptian master in a way that brings um, blessing to his Egyptian master. Then we see he gets wrongly accused and imprisoned, and he serves faithfully in prison as a prisoner, um, bringing blessing to the Egyptian prisoners and uh, warden. I mean, like they're all being blessed because of uh, who it is that's serving faithfully there. It's this descendant of Abraham who's doing this. Okay, that's good. That's good. See somebody finally doing that. And it's especially strange that what we're seeing is he's doing this when things and times are not good for him. How often do you find that to be the case yourself, that you find it that when things are bad, you're still able to uh, remain faithful and on track and blessing other people around you? Is that typically the case? Or when things get bad in your life and they're not going the way you planned, is that when the, uh, your fuse kind of gets a little shorter? And maybe you're less of a blessing to the people around you. In Joseph's case, things were not going as he had thought they were going to. In fact, uh, he'd had some dreams earlier on that said that everybody was going to be bowing down to him. His whole family was going to be bowing down to him one day. And instead, he ends up in prison in a foreign land. And so it seems like that'd be a good time for him to just... Let his fuse get a little shorter. Sit and pout for a while. This isn't fair. This isn't what it's supposed to be. This is not how life is supposed to go. And instead, what we see him doing is blessing the people around him. 
Not because his life circumstances have been so wonderful, not because the people around him are so wonderful, not because anyone there deserves him to be so good to them, but because he's not really serving them as much as he's serving God. As much as he's learning to trust in God rather in his own strength. And then what we saw last week is uh, he actually gets brought to a high position that he goes straight from the kind of the lowest of lows, the highest of highs, just like that. That there were these dreams that the Pharaoh has, that king over all of Egypt, but he can't interpret what in the world these mean, and it really bothers him. And he checks with everybody, and nobody knows what they mean. What they mean. And so uh, they end up calling Joseph out of prison and says, can you tell us what they mean? And he says, no, but God can. And giving glory to God, Joseph interprets the dreams for Pharaoh, lets him know what is coming. And it says what is coming is going to be seven years where things are really good in the land. The, the land is going to produce a good crop. It's going to be a good, uh, good times of harvest. There's going to be a time of plenty. Everyone will have more than enough. But only for seven years. And after that point, there's going to be seven years of famine where the land does not produce enough. No one will have enough. So Joseph uh, explains this is what the dreams mean to the Pharaoh, that God has uh, given this to Pharaoh in advance to let him know what's going on in order to be able to provide for the people. And he says, you should probably put somebody who's wise in charge of this whole project. And so Pharaoh says, you seem pretty wise. How about you? I'm doing a lot of paraphrasing here. I hope you catch that. He says, you seem pretty wise. How about you? And so he brings him out of uh, prison and brings him to this high level of authority and leadership. And this is where we're going to pick up the story. But one of the questions that we have is, now, with things going really well for Joseph, how's he going to be? We have seen how he's been when things are not going well and how he was blessing those around him. What about when things are going well? Think about yourself. How do you do when things are going really well in your life? Are those the times that you are a blessing to those around you, or are those the times where you feel like, eh, I don't need to do that right now. Things are going well. I'll just... I just do me right now. This is good. Let's not mess this up. We seem to be pretty good at finding the good times in our lives and the hard times in our lives as equal but opposite excuses for following God. What we're seeing here, though, with Joseph is something different. This is Genesis chapter 41, picking up the story in verse 41. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command, and people shouted before him, Make way! Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift hand or foot in all Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zephinath Paniah. Joseph is so much easier. Anyway, Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zephinath Paniah and gave him Asenath, daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, 
to be his wife. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain, like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim and said, It is because God made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. The seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the other lands, but in the whole land of Egypt there was food. When all Egypt began to feel the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food. Then Pharaoh told all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph and do what he tells you. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, because the famine was severe everywhere. All right, how's he do? Things are good in his life, right? He goes from prison all the way to second in command um, in all of Egypt. He gets all the kind of the, the finer things in life. He gets the, uh, the ring and the clothes. He has everybody uh, making way before him as he rides through Egypt. And then what we see is uh, you could stop the story at this point. It doesn't stop at this point, but you could. You could stop the story at this point and see that there's kind of a conclusion to the story that we started all the way back when. That there's a way in which when uh, we're looking at Abraham and his family as somehow one of his descendants is going to bless all the peoples of the world, right? And we have seen failure after failure in that regard. But here we have, here we have somebody, a descendant of Abraham, who in a time of great need in the whole surrounding area, we have all these nations and they're all coming to Joseph, because he has uh, the food that he can um, get to them because he actually believed what God said. Think about this. In the seven years of plenty, what would be the tendency of people who are farming throughout Egypt? You would think, oh, I'm doing something right here. I, somehow this is, you know, producing great and I'm going to you know, take careful notes and we're going to keep on doing what we're doing because this year, de- the first year of plenty is like, this is definitely better than last year. And then the next year, oh, I did it again and it happened again. I did it again. It happened again. And for seven years, you're on this track and you're thinking it's not going to end, right? This is how it's going to be from now on. I've, I've mastered farming. <laughs> Does anybody ever master farming? No, because if you know how farming actually works, you know that there's a lot you can do, and there's also a lot that's out of your hands. And so uh, during those seven years, 
I do think it would be easy to start getting complacent and thinking this is just how it's going to be now. But Joseph knows this is not how it's going to be. He knows that those, though there are good days right now, the hard times are coming. And God has said it's going to be like this, but it's also going to be like this. And so you need to be preparing now for what's to come. And we see Joseph actually believing that and operating as though that's true. And so making preparations uh, during the seven years of plenty so that when the seven years of famine comes, all the nations are coming to him. And we see this blessing to everybody as their lives are saved through what he is doing. Now, um, this is not the end of the story. As I say, it could be in one sense because we're seeing somebody who's kind of blessing all the peoples as a descendant of Abraham. And yet, there's still a part of this where it, that doesn't quite feel right, does it? This doesn't quite seem like the fitting conclusion to this story. It doesn't seem like everything has been tied up neatly. Like there's still maybe some loose ends. Things like, well, let's go back to the names that he gives his sons when he's there in Egypt. I mean, we see Joseph getting a new name, looking not only like a... um, an Egyptian, but now sounding like an Egyptian with an Egyptian-sounding name, an Egyptian uh, wife. And now he's got these kids, and he gives them these names, um, Ephraim and Manasseh. Uh, Manasseh meaning, it is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. And Ephraim saying, it is because God made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Now, you can see what he means about being fruitful in the land of his suffering, right? That the land of his suffering is pretty obvious, as he had been taken away from everyone he knew, everything he knew, and been uh, sold into slavery, and then wrongly imprisoned. I think it would be right to call this his land of suffering. And yet, here he is, uh, being fruitful, not only in uh, what he has been doing while he's there, but also now being raised up to the position he's been raised to. That part's obvious. The other name? Is it because God has made me forget all my trouble and my father's household? Does that sound right? Doesn't it seem like if he'd actually forgotten it, he wouldn't bring it up? (laughs) But even in giving the name, you see, he still does remember. And that reminds us, too, that this story is incomplete. That in the same way Pharaoh had had two dreams, and Joseph said it's because God has given it twice, it means it's definitely going to happen, that this is the seven years of good and the seven years of hard. But Joseph had two dreams earlier, didn't he? Back when he was at home with his father's family. And those dreams have just been left hanging, haven't they? Nobody's been from his family has been coming to bow down to him yet. But Joseph had two dreams and said that was going to be the case. And so that is where this story is not finished. The story is left incomplete as we wait to see how God is going to do that. But there's also a sense in which this story uh, is incomplete 
in that it's not just about Joseph feeding the people around Egypt. But the way in which this points to something much bigger, uh, that points to something that is to come, uh, someone who will be this descendant of Abraham who will be a blessing to all the nations. And I have to say, I, I really do struggle with the way that Joseph operates in this uh, whole scenario. And we'll get more into this as we go, but I'll just point it out now and you can be bothered by it as we go <laughs> as well. His plan uh, for provision is to collect the food during the good years so everyone will have enough during the bad years. Okay, so far so good. But do you notice that when, it's the, bad, when the bad years come, how the people get the food? He doesn't give it freely, does he? No, he collects it freely. <laughs> but then he sells it back to him. And we're going to see this actually causing some problems as we go later on. But that's where I want us to, uh, to look forward in the way that this is an incomplete uh, picture of that blessing to all the nations. And I want us to think about Jesus in these terms. The one who knows what is to come and who tells us, here's how things are going to be. Therefore, prepare now, Right? And who gives, uh, it doesn't sell to us what we need, but he gives, freely gives to us what we need. Uh, it's incomplete also because of the, the short-term nature of what is provided here. What, it, what is it that they're needing? They need food. But Jesus has nothing against food. He actually, when he teaches us to pray, give us today our daily bread. Right? This is one of the things that we're supposed to be uh, praying for. Nothing against that. But he also says that we're not to be those who worry about what we're going to eat or what we're going to drink or what we're going to wear. Because the pagans run after all those things. And the Lord knows that you need them. But what does he say to do instead? He says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. That there is a way in which the, um, the kingdom of God and the righteousness that he gives, this is what we ought to be hungering and thirsting after. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. For they will be filled, Jesus says. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. All these things will be given to you as well. There is a way in which Joseph points us to Jesus as the one who ultimately gives us what we need, that is not just the things of this world, but actually the things, the things of God, the things that we are supposed to actually be growing into as we reflect God into this world, and to a world of people who are running after the things of this world and worrying what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? And it is as we remain in Jesus, 
that we begin to reflect him and we actually bring this kind of blessing to the world, providing what they actually need. And so in the same way that if you were in Egypt and farming during the good years, you may think, we don't need to worry about things getting bad. We're good. We've got this. We already got it down. And for Joseph to say, actually, we're going to need to hang on to some of that grain for when the times are bad. (laughs) You're getting in my way. That's all that is. Until the bad years come, and then everybody comes to Pharaoh and says, please give us food. (laughs) Right? The situation sure changes their perspective. Not so, though, with Joseph. We have seen when he was uh, down low that he was still seeking to bless others. When he's up high, he's still seeking to bless others. But the situations, uh, whether there's good or whether there's not enough, doesn't seem to change that, even if in an incomplete way. With Jesus, we see the same kind of thing this steadfast commitment to faithfulness to God, to his kingdom, regardless of whether situations seem good or seem not so good. That he is committed to righteousness and to blessing others. And oh, for this we are thankful. But he also calls us to follow him in this that we would actually grow to look more like him. More like him even than like Joseph. That we would be those who, as he tells his disciples, who have freely received and so should freely give. This is a good time to think about how we're doing that. How we're growing in Christ-likeness. Today is the Super Bowl. I figure you're probably aware of that. Also, we're also in the middle of the Olympics, and you think about uh, things in terms of athletic competition and sports. You know, Paul talks about life as this race that you're running and there's training and all that. And I do think sometimes that people think of church as coming to church on a Sunday morning, like that's the event, like that's the if you're thinking about it in terms of football game, that this is game time, right? I don't think so. I also don't think that this is like practice. I don't think so. Here's the way I see it. I have to do this today because it's the last day of football season, right? And move on. Now, here's the way I see it, is that game time is all of time. <laughs> like, we are living in game time. Practice time is what we are doing on our own when we are studying the Bible, when we are studying it on our own, we're studying it together, when we are praying. That's the practice. And this, on Sunday morning, I think of as like time out. When you step away from all that for a second, we huddle up together and we remind ourselves what game we're playing after all. So you have somebody whose feelings got hurt because that other player called my mom a cow, and now I'm all mad and I'm worked up. And we gather together and you say, 
that's not what the game's about. <laughs> Remember what it's about. Let's not lose sight of this whole story that the whole Bible has been telling. And so we remember the way things were good in the beginning and God with his people and people with God. And we look all the way to the end and we see the same thing, God with his people and his people with God. But there's something that broke down in the middle and the way that he says it's going to be restored is through a descendant of Abraham who's going to bless all the peoples of the world. And we see Jesus show up and he does exactly that. And he calls us to follow him in that. So this has been yet another halftime speech, or <laughs> halftime speech, um, timeout speech, whatever. And as we go from here, we go back into the game, but we remember what game we're playing. We remember what it is that we are to do and how we are to do it, who it is that we are seeking to follow. We also do it as a team. So let's continue to remind each other and work together to help each other follow Jesus better. That he would produce in us the righteousness that would lead to blessing of all the world. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.